Pray with me, Father, I pray that we would be overcome with the love of Christ for us, that we'd be able to understand the heights and the depth, the width, the breadth of his love for us. And so, Father, I pray that even as we think upon this scripture this morning, that you would open our eyes and enable us to see it, that we could see the very love of Christ and be overwhelmed, be overcome by it. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Joshua in chapter 20. Joshua in chapter 20, please. I want to read beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of God. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or knowingly uh, may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. And then they shall take him into the city and give him a place. And he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is, the, who is high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town in his own home to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kedish in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem, and in the hill country of Ephraim, and in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, and beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and, and Ramoth and, Ga- and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Now, what I want to do today is put a picture in your mind. Put a picture in your mind, something about God and something about us. Um, So if you're new to Christianity and you're just here with a friend or you're here to check things out, then it will be, I think, a good picture for you to understand a bit about Christianity and about Christ. Um, and if you're a Christian, I hope it puts into your head uh, a picture of who we are and who, most especially, who Jesus is. So uh, that's where we're headed. I know that I skipped a bunch of chapters, if you've been with us. I uh, only uh, went from chapter 13 and preached a little bit out of chapter 14, and now I'm in chapter 20. You may think that's uh, uh, unusual, which it is, but it's, it's, it's frankly uh, most of what I've skipped are lists of how the land is allocated. And I'm not that good uh, to get anything really that I, that preachable uh, out of that necessarily, other than God is faithful. He promised the land. He delivered it. And there it is. They get it. And they'll go into the land. I think it was helpful last week to pick up a little bit of the contrast between how Caleb entered the piece of land that was given to him and his family um, and, and other Israelites, Caleb going in and, and um, 
driving out all the inhabitants there just as God had commanded as a judgment upon them uh, so that he could receive his inheritance plus then uh, to eliminate temptation from him to follow other gods. And then the other uh, folks who didn't do that in their various tribes, if you want to read about the impact of not driving out all of those um, inhabitants, you can read the book of Judges and you'll find uh, the difficulties there. And the word to us, of course, was that we really need to be diligent about our own sin and even sin in our community. And we need to uh, drive it out because it will always be there to tempt us. We never should think we could make peace with it in order to profit from it, as some in Israel did. But what I want to think about today are these uh, cities uh, of refuge uh, that have were established by God. It's no surprise that these cities of refuge exist in Joshua chapter 20. If you read through the book of Exodus in a, just a preliminary way in Exodus chapter 21, God tells about the fact that these cities of refuge should be there. If you read in Numbers chapter 35 and Deuteronomy and chapter 19, you'll find more specifics about the command uh, Moses gave that these cities of refuge should happen, should be there, should be part of ancient, uh, ancient Israel. But, but not only should it surprise us from that regard, but it's just like God to do something like this. Um, human life is of great value to God. Therefore, human life is of great value. And God is the one who establishes value. And he created human beings unique. And he created them to uniquely image him. He created male and female. He created people in his image, meaning that we were to reflect him. Look in the mirror, you see your image. We're to reflect God. And so he made us in such a way that we could do that, different from the sun, moon, stars, animals, and plants, and so forth. Now, they image God in a certain way, in that they show his power and his wisdom. But human beings are the crown of God's creation. And to us, he's given uh, his very character. That we can be like him in certain ways that we're to reflect him. And our wisdom is to reflect his wisdom. Our love is to reflect his love. Our character, if you will, is to reflect his moral character. And he's given us this moral responsibility. And he's given to us uh, dominion, he says, over the earth. Not sovereignty over the earth, but dominion under him. Human beings were created on the sixth day. To be over all of that had, that had been created. But God rests in the seventh day, which means he's over everything. And so he rules and reigns and we under him, if you will. We're stewards of all that he's made. And so he's given to us that. And so we reflect him, we image him. Most especially in our character, we're to image him in love. Because he is love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've said this before, but it's a helpful little ditty from the Puritans who said that God in himself is a happy society, is a loving society. Father loves son, son loves spirit, spirit loves father. It's a, it's a loving society. And in God, there's perfect contentment because there's perfect love. And when he created us to image him, he created us to love, most especially to love as he loves and to love what he loves. And so human life is of great significance to God. Death, therefore, is a great aversion to God. Death wasn't part of the original creation. Um, when we read of the creation days in Genesis chapter 1, and we read the pronouncement that it was good, 
And it was good. And it was good. We don't read about death in the midst of that. For death doesn't come really into the race of human beings until Genesis in chapter 3. And it comes because of sin. It comes because of judgment upon rebellion against God. God has created us to image Him, to reflect Him. That is life. And if we do not do that, then He takes life from us. So death is judgment. And the very presence of death still today as we think upon, you know, we, we, we realize we die. People die. We see death around us. It's a reminder, no matter how much we try to avoid it in America, it's a reminder of sin. It's a reminder of judgment. It's a reminder that human beings, in and of themselves, apart from God, do not deserve life. For we've rebelled against Him. And we've used life, in a way that's contrary to imaging him, contrary to God's way. And so justice says, take away life. You haven't used it in the way that the Creator had intended. And so death comes, uh, not as an easy thing in Genesis chapter 3, but it comes at a cataclysmic thing. It's... And you get the sense... That it's the opposite of God, if you will. For God is life. And when death comes, you get a sense of chill. You get a, a sense, this isn't the way it ought to be. So death is very significant. In fact, even in the normal course of death, if we want to say, the most natural of deaths in the Old Testament, a ritual had to go, had to happen in a person's life who had touched death. If someone died in your tent, someone died in your place, in your house, and you touched them, and they touched your things, and they died there, they had to die somewhere, obviously, uh, you would be considered unclean. Not evil, but unclean. Why? Because you touched the very thing that was the judgment of God. And you say, well, maybe that person was a believer. Of course. I don't mean judgment upon them, per se, but judgment upon humanity. That's what death is. And so if you touch that... It would be known, marked, that you were unclean and you had to go through a process, a seven-day process, to become cleansed, if you will, from, from just being a part of them. You say, well, why is that? Well, because death is that significant. You couldn't just, couldn't just keep on going. Not when something like that had happened. Not just the grief over it, but, but, but the very uncleanness, because it pollutes the holiness of God the very presence of death, because God is life. And so there was this ritual that one would have to go through. You'd have to take a red heifer, cow that was red, and kill it and burn it completely. Everything. The whole deal. Blood and everything. Take the ashes, mix with water. Take the water, and on the third day of this seven-day process... A priest would take some hyssop, a little natural paintbrush, and sprinkle, good Presbyterian priest, sprinkle on the person. Uh, and then on the seventh day, do the same thing. At the end of that seven-day period, then the person would be cleansed. You go, well, what's up with that? Uh, well, nothing magic in the water, nothing magic in the ashes of the red heifer, except that atonement and cleansing would have to be made. And so this animal would die. 
and then mixed with water. And so you get a sense of atonement, payment for sin, and a sense of cleansing, all in one little hyssop sprinkle, right? All of that coming at the same time. And then the person will be cleansed. When death was at the hand of another human being, that is, if a person was murdered, then it was even more startling and more significant because here is a person, in a sense, playing God. He was a person who was taking the life of another. How can any human being do that? And so uh, there was no ritual at that point for that person of cleansing. For instance, in Genesis, in chapter 9, verse 6, we read, we read this. Um, verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I'll require a reckoning from every beast. I'll require it from, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning, reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so you see that if one person killed another, murdered another, that that person's life would be taken. In fact, in the days of Joshua in ancient Israel... The one who would take that life would be the avenger of blood. And the person called the avenger of blood would be the nearest relative to the one who had been killed. And they had the right, they had the obligation, the responsibility to go and avenge that person. In fact, that little expression, this is for you people who study the Bible from time to time, that little expression, avenger of blood, is the same expression that we read, for instance, in the book of Ruth, which is the kinsman redeemer. And that person comes, kinsman redeemer, if their relative were in debt, he could buy them out of that debt. If there was one in the family that needed to be married off, that person could marry them off and marry them even to redeem their life, if you will, from the disappointment and all of that. But here now comes one who avenges the life of another, brings justice. So all that's then to just get us to this point. What happens if, if death comes at the hand of, of another and it's accidental, then what can we do? I mean, it's kind of a tweener. You know, it isn't just a natural sort of death. It just sort of happens in someone's life. They expire, if you will. But it isn't murder either because there was no hatred, no intent. One of the illustrations given in, in, in the book of Numbers is that if you're out chopping wood with a friend and your axe head comes off of your axe and strikes your friend in the head and he dies... And you weren't angry with him. You had no malice towards him. And, and uh, assuming doesn't the Bible doesn't say that, but there's no particular negligence involved. You didn't unscrew all the things on your axe head. Um, what should one do? Because the next of kin is thinking, this man has killed my brother. And therefore, I must go and avenge that. That would be justice. So how could we help this person? And so God says, I'm going to set up these cities of refuge. I'm going to put them in the cities of the Levites. The Levites, I know this is a lot of information, but it's the Bible. It's our heritage. We should know this stuff. And we'll come to a good application. So hang with me. Um, the Levites were one of the tribes of Israel, but they weren't given any land per se to inherit. They were simply scattered among all the tribes into 48 different cities. And they were, they, they were scattered around because they were essentially the priestly class. They were, they were the priests. And they were the ones who would, who would handle all the religious, if you will, affairs of the communities and represent the people before God. So they kind of had to be everywhere around uh, for sacrifices, for prayer, and so forth. 
And so they were around. And six of these 48 cities were to be set up as cities of refuge. And here is sort of how it would work. That if someone had killed someone accidentally, and they knew that the avenger of blood was going to come after them, then they could run to these cities of refuge. And these cities of refuge, tradition tells us, were set up where we can see that even in Scripture, were set up in centralized places. And roads, Deuteronomy 19 tells us, roads were constructed towards them and maintained. It was a very important thing to maintain the roads to the cities of refuge so that you wouldn't trip on your way. Signs were put up so that you wouldn't miss your way. And you would get to the city of refuge, and the doors generally were unlocked. And you could, we would walk in and find the elders, find the, the, the elder priests, if you will, of that particular city of refuge. And you would explain your case to them. And, uh, and they had rules of evidence and so forth and all of that. And they would hear sort of this preliminary report. If it, if it rung true to them, then they would allow you to stay in the city. But they would set a time when you would have to face what the Bible calls the congregation. Now, it's a little unspecific as to who made up that congregation. You get the impression from some passages that it was outside the city of refuge. Maybe it was back in their own hometown. But, or maybe it was a group of others. I don't know. But they would face the congregation. And they would bring evidence, no doubt, about their own innocence in that particular death. And if it was found, however, that they actually murdered that person, you can read the laws of evidence and so forth, in Deuteronomy 19 and Numbers chapter 35. Uh, if it found they murdered them, then that person's life would be taken. But if it was found that the uh, death was accidental, then they would be allowed to stay in the city of refuge. If they ever left the city of refuge... They could be killed. And they had to stay in the city of refuge until the high priest died. And when the high priest died of that particular city, then they could go back home. And this was for everybody. This wasn't just for, for native-born Israelites, but these were for the inhabitants of the land. So the people that weren't driven out, if they accidentally killed someone or even killed accidentally an Israelite, it would be for them. If you're just walking through the land, and somehow, inadvertently, uh, you know, killed somebody. Uh, your brakes went out in your car. Uh, then you would have this city of refuge uh, as your place. Now, there's a number of curious things in all of this. Number one, why is it that that person had to stay in the city of refuge until after the high priest uh, had died? Uh, that seems like a rather arbitrary time. I mean, for some, maybe the high priest was really sick. And so you got there and you only had to stay a week and a half. But maybe you get there and the high priest had just become a high priest, relatively young, vigorous guy. Maybe he's going to be high priest for 35 years. And you'd have to stay in the city of refuge for 35 years. What was the deal of the high priest uh, um, situation? You might think, well, the city of refuge was rather nice. It would give at least the grieving family an opportunity to grieve without looking at you all the time. But it would be a rather hardship on the person because, after all, the death was accidental. It wasn't meant. Why should he have to stay away from home for that, for that period of time? So why that period of time? Why couldn't you just say to the family who had lost this person, um, we're going to allow this person to stay in the city of refuge for like a month and a half. And after it gets out, you have to leave him alone. Because you see, even after it was established there was an accidental death, he went into the city of refuge and he couldn't leave until the high priest 
died. And if he did leave before the high priest died, it was likely the avenger would come and kill him. And you go, well, what's up with that? Why, why couldn't you just say, listen, it was an accident. Leave him alone. A couple of things. One, I think it does tell us how significant life is to God. And to say that even though it was accidental, there may still be need to be a time for the one who, has, who was involved in the accident, uh, for a time of cleansing for him, a time of relief for the family, and a time for the whole community to just sit up and take notice that death happened. But secondly, it seems that there has to be something about this high priest And when you think about the high priest, we know from Old Testament passages that the high priest was the one who represented the people before God. He mediated, if I could use that word, he was the go-between. He mediated the covenant promises of God to the people. And so he was the one who would make sacrifices on behalf of the people and go to God and say, the people have sinned, please accept this sacrifice instead of their lives, accept the life of this sacrifice. He would be the one to make prayers on behalf of the people. God, please receive these prayers on behalf of the people. He would come to the people and give assurance and he would teach them and tell them about the promises of God and how that they would live in the midst of, 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 the, of God dwelling amidst them. And the high priest, of course, was very special. He was the one... You remember from our study of Hebrews, he was the one who would go into the, the, the holy of holies, the most holy place on the day of atonement. And on that one day of year, he would make atonement for all the sins of the people. And you get the sense that when the high priest would die, that, that his life would symbolize atonement, cleansing for that death. And then the person would be free to go back home. During that time, he'd be perfectly safe. When he'd go home, because the high priest had died, he'd be perfectly safe back home, even though he'd be amongst the family of the person who had accidentally died by his hand. Where do we go with all of this? You know where I'm going to go with this. I can't help but think of Jesus. Um, this is a city of refuge. The scripture tells us that Jesus is our high priest. Again, from the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2, verse 14, uh, we read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And then in chapter 6 and verse 16, uh, we read this. For people swear by something greater than themselves... And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two things, by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. We have this 
as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, our high priest, lived for us, died for us, that we might flee to him, that he might be our person, place, city of refuge. See, people who need refuge are refugees. There are people fleeing from danger. When we have refugee camps set around the world, there are people who have fled from danger. Somebody is after them, and they've fled from danger. And you see, Jesus is that very one. We flee to him because we look at the world, and it's bigger than us. We look at our life, and we realize, I can't be sovereign over all of this. And we look at God, and we realize, he's God. And how are we going to face him? Alone, unaided, unclothed. Adam and Eve couldn't do it. They knew they were naked and fled. How can we do it? Stand unclothed in the very, in the very presence of God. So Francis Schaeffer, an old, I quoted him last week because he has a nice book on Joshua. Uh, but Francis Schaeffer uh, marks a number of similarities between Jesus and these cities of refuge. Uh, one is that, that Jesus is easy to reach. You know, these cities of refuge were to be easy to reach, and Jesus is easy to reach. You remember the prophet Isaiah, and then picked up from uh, John the Baptist, said that when the Messiah would come, one would come before him to make straight paths uh, for him. The prophecy from Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And we realize that the paths of Jesus are straight. And John the Baptist came to make them straight. How did he make them straight? He did it with this line. He says about Jesus, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. He's saying, listen, you have something to run from. The judgment of God. And here's the one to whom and in whom you must run because he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Meaning, he's the one who can cleanse you like fire cleanses you. And he's the one who can transform you by the very work of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus would say, come to me all you are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest, there's a sense, he says, listen, if, if you're burdened and you know the sin and the guilt from it, come to me. Because I'm the one who can give you rest because I've come to baptize you with the Holy Spirit to transform you and with fire to cleanse you, to purify you. So he says, come to me uh, in all of that. I don't know about you, but life is huge. And we think about facing every aspect of life. Um, the reasonable, rational person lives with a measure of worry and fear. How are we going to raise our children? How are we going to live our lives? How are we going to provide for our families? How are we going to maintain our health? What are we going to do uh, when our company reorganizes and we lose our job? What will happen in the midst of all that? The uncertainty is tremendous. How we deal in the midst of relationships that are tenuous. 
when it's easy to offend and be offended and those offenses can cause huge chasms between people and sometimes those are people we call mom or dad or son or daughter or husband or wife or friend or colleague and classmate what happens in the midst of all of those things and you get a sense that Jesus saying come to me I'll give you rest, I'll give you peace, I'll give you safety, I'll give you security. You're safe here with me. And the reason that we're safe here with him is because all of those insecurities, and this is going to sound like an oversimplification, but it isn't. All of those insecurities and all of those worries come deep within the soul that says, I don't know if I'm accepted by God. Because you see, once there's security... That knowing that God is for us, then we realize that the very one who's the creator of everything, who looks over everything, who watches over everything, who's sovereign over everything, is with us and for us. Then there is no need to worry. And you say, and I say, but I still worry and I'm anxious. Does that mean that I'm not completely convinced that God is for me and that I'm with it, him? And the answer is yes, that's what that means. That's why none of us can say, I have perfect faith. We may have perfect assurance, because after we play through it, we go, oh yeah, I know. But when worries come and when fears come, the reason they come is that we're wondering, is God really sovereign in, in, in the midst of all of this? And is he really for me? And those anxious moments come because we don't know how he's going to work this out and we can't see how he's really with us at that moment in time. And we begin to worry and we get anxious and we begin to be afraid and all of that. And Jesus said, run to me. To me. That's why that little Billy Graham song, Just As I Am, is so great. Because Jesus says, run to me. Because you see, if you run to the Father... Apart from Jesus, you're in big trouble. Because in and of ourselves, we're sinful and his judgment would be upon us. So Jesus says, come to me. I've taken care of everything. All right, the gates are open. Uh, it's a secure place. You're welcome here. Every provision has been made. The high priest has died. So you're free. You can wander around. It's okay. Why? Because I've taken your sin. I've been the propitiation for your sin because whether you knew it or not at the time whether you know it or not in the midst of your anxiety that's really the issue isn't it the issue is can God accept me because I know myself to be a sinner will he really accept me so he says come to me and I'll give you rest and I'll give you freedom to wander around in the very presence of God and you won't have to worry and you won't have to be anxious you won't have to worry and be anxious about God accepting you and you won't really have to worry and be anxious about all this stuff and so Jesus says let me give you some things to think about think about the lilies of the field think about the birds of the air God makes the lilies pretty and he makes the birds of the air he knows everything about them because he cares for them but he cares more for you so much more for you infinitely more for you. So don't worry. But then we say, but, 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 but do, do I know that God really cares for me? And Jesus says, yes. Well, how do I know that he really cares for me? Jesus says, come to me. Find your refuge in me. Don't try to find it in all the things that you've done that, that, that might be able to make God like you more. 
at least you think would be able to make God like you more. Don't, don't, don't find your refuge in all the compliments that people give you by saying how good you are and how great you are and how spiritual and wonderful you are and all those kinds of things. Don't find your refuge there. Don't find your refuge in whether you're a good parent or not a good parent or successful or not at work or a good student or not a good student. Don't find any of your, your stuff there. He says, run to me and I'll tell you that I loved you and I love you and I gave myself for you so that you would be acceptable to God and I've done everything good that's necessary to please God and I did it for you now here receive my righteousness and stand before God lose your anxiety quell your fears stop your worrying I really am with you now I know the future is uncertain in your mind, but it's not uncertain in my mind. I know that you don't know what's going to happen next Tuesday, but I do. In fact, I do this from time to time. Put in your day timer next to whatever day. It's going to be a hard day for you. Put it like the earliest time in the morning. Jesus is here. And put a big line down your day. Helps you to know that he's already been there. He's going to be there. It'll be fine. Uh, Difficult uncertainty, but not to him. And he really is with you. And that's hard to believe. Because life is really big. And the things that can happen are really hard. And you look at your little three-year-old and you start playing out what six or nine or 15 or 18 or 25 looks like in the life of that kid. And you go, Run to Jesus, right? And he'll help you in all that. It certainly opened everybody who comes the, the declaration of the gospel that I read to you this morning from Isaiah 55 is that kind of, that kind of invitation. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money. And without price, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. What an amazing thing. He's saying, listen, all of you are spiritually poor and have absolutely nothing and are worried about that. (laughs) Come on. I've got everything you need. Come to me. I'll help you. Seek me. I'll help you. Find your refuge in me. And I will. And I will help you. We need to see Jesus as our city of refuge, as our place to go. But let me put just one, and I don't have much time for this. Let me just put one more picture in your mind. And that is, if Jesus is our refuge, and he is, and we're the body of Christ, shouldn't people see us as a place to go in time of need? Not because we're going to be able to solve their problems but because we seem to be people who are living in the city of refuge. We seem to be people who, who, are, who, who are able to live in peace. Shouldn't it be that we as individual Christians and we as the church should understand ourselves to be, in a very real sense, a place where our troubled family members, where our troubled friends, where our troubled neighbors, where our troubled co-workers 
All the people we come in contact with should seek us out. You know, Peter says that we ought to be able at any time to make a defense for the hope that's within us. Meaning that people should be able to see that we have hope. Now, someone who'd killed somebody accidentally had hope. His only hope was in the city of refuge. It wasn't outside the city of refuge, but it was really in the city of refuge. And that was the place of his hope. And he'd run there and live there. And if anybody else would ever have that kind of situation and, and, and accidentally kill somebody, they'd think, I know where Joe went to have hope. He went to the city of refuge. I'm going to go there too. Shouldn't we? And this isn't a guilt trip because to me this is just invigorating. Shouldn't we be living in such a way that people would see our lives as those who've run to Jesus for refuge and help and strength and safety and all that? Shouldn't they be able to see that? And shouldn't they be able, shouldn't they just, shouldn't they come to us? Now I know that happens. I know that they do. Not a guilt trip. But I want you to put that in your minds as you're mowing the lawn, as you're walking around the neighborhood, as you're at the grocery store. As you're at work, as you're, you know, helping coach your kids' little basketball league or whatever it is. Wherever you're coming in contact with people, to have in your mind that Jesus is my refuge. And I'm part of the body of Christ. I want to live in such a way that people can see the hope that I have. And when they have trouble, they may not know enough to run to Jesus. But I pray they know me well enough to run to me. And you go, well, then what do I do? Quite frankly, that's the easy part. You take them to Jesus. Now, I've oversimplified because you're involved in their lives and it may be a mess. But you continue to take them to Jesus because he is really our refuge. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us, for me, That at every moment in time, as we're reminded uh, of our own sin on the one hand, of our own weakness on the other, that we'd run to Jesus. That perpetually we would see him as our refuge. And that there's no refuge outside of him that we can ever leave him and be safe. And Father, that he is our refuge because... He's made us right with you. And we can have the confidence that since he is for us, no one can be against us. Nothing can be against us. Not our own guilt. Not even Satan. And not the world. Nothing. And I pray too, God, for us that we would live in such a way that people would see uh, a place to run uh, when their lives stack up and get difficult and that we would be faithful always to take them to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Reminder of Sunday school coming up in about 10 or 12 minutes and our time tonight with Brad Supple, so please take note of those. The response to the benediction is, God is my refuge. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy to our only wise God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore.
And all God's people said, God is my refuge. Hallelujah.